This is a case from the Mumon Khan, <coughs> case 40, kicking over the water jug. Case. When Master Kuei Shan was under Pai Chang, he had the position of Tenzo, head cook. Pai Chang wanted to choose a master for Mount Tai. He called the head monk and the rest of his disciples together to have them present their views and said that the outstanding person should be sent. Then he took a water jug, put it on the floor and said, you may not call this a water jug. What will you call it? The head monk said, it cannot be called a wooden sandal. Pai Chang then asked Kui Shan. Kui Shan immediately kicked over the water jug and left. Pai Chang laughed and said, First monk, you have been defeated by Kui Shan. And so he ordered Kui Shan to found a new monastery. Mumon's commentary. Kui Shan summoned up all his valor, but he could not jump up of Pai Chang's trap. Upon examination, he favors the heavy and not the light. But why? Look, though he removed his headband, he put on an iron yoke. The verse. Tossing away the bamboo buckets and ladles, he makes a vigorous thrust and cuts off hindrances. Pai Chang's heavy barrier cannot interrupt his rush. Countless Buddhas come forth from his toes. So I'd like to welcome new faces. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's always a pleasure. Um, it's nice to see things flowing, moving, changing, mingling all the new, practicing together, sitting together, recognizing equanimity, unity, no old, young, experience, juniors, one practice. One practice of what? You know, last, last Zazenka, last uh, Sunday, I brought up a koan that deals with the aspect of manifesting the everyday life of Zazen and realization. And we looked at Dogen's words on what it means to be a living Buddha through the four modes of existence, laying down, sitting, standing, walking. Seamless existence of practice. And in, in speaking about doing the Buddha's life, right? Dogen uses the word doing. And we chant, doing the Prajna Paramitta. Not contemplating, not thinking about it, not comparing. Just doing the Prajna Paramitta. And Dogen emphasizes that grave importance of becoming a living embodiment of the truth rather than a walking idea of it. In other words, instead of thinking and talking about what has been realized, the focus has to be on how do I live what I just realized. Not to think and talk too much about it and let our actions manifest 
any depth of realization, any depth of understanding, even if we think it's shallow, even that, put it aside, how do I manifest it? Or do I? You know, we, we enter the practice, all of us, with many preconceived ideas about Zen, about Buddhism, about spiritual training in general. And over time, these ideas, kind of, if we practice diligently, they shift away to the background. They become less important, maybe. But as they shift away or move, or as we let them go, it's much more difficult to let go of the process, of the mechanism that does that. So we produce ideas about what we think the practice is, or maybe. Those ideas move to the background. But then, very quickly, we produce ideas about what we experience in the practice. And produce ideas about ourselves as practitioners. And then we can very quickly find ourselves being chained by the practice. As Dogen called it, being tied without a rope. So we end up swapping one set of ideas with another set of ideas and being trapped is being trapped. And what we need to do is always, continuously, see that, see the forming of ideas as it happens and keep knocking it down on the go to see that letting go does not mean not forming new ideas. So to practice diligently or honestly means to keep the finger on the pulse, to recognize I am slipping into a new kind of self. Or I'm forming new ideas about this self or by practice. And to see that on the go, this is one of the more important things about practicing on the go, or practicing being a Buddha, not becoming a Buddha. Dwelling nowhere, raise the body mind. Dwelling nowhere, being nobody, Having no ideas, raise the body-mind. Last week I was invited to give a talk about Buddhism at a synagogue and to lead a discussion with questions and answers. And every time I, I do that, I, I get to talk about Buddhism, it's actually fascinating to see how, how many ideas and preconceived notions we walk around with about Buddhism, about Zen, about spiritual practice. Right? And, and also, as people encounter Buddhism, or anything else, actually, and it doesn't have to be Buddhism, how often the questions revolve around protecting what we think rather than actually delving into and opening up to what we don't know. Right? People sit down and want to listen, want to hear. But when we start to feel that what we hear is threatening what we believe. Then we send out the troops. Then the most important thing is to protect rather than to open up and 
maybe be curious. First line of defense, protect. In other words, can I listen to this and then file it somewhere without actually allowing it to penetrate and move something in me? There's different ways of, you can sit down and listen to a lecture and find it interesting, get up, say thank you, and go back to whatever it is you were doing before that. Or we can sit down and listen and allow it to penetrate and allow it to shift something. But it takes some level of courage. Some level of willingness to maybe put aside everything I think and know just for a little bit and open up to what we don't know. Right? To, to venture to, out to uncharted territories, right? to, to raise the possibility that maybe what I've come to trust and believe, maybe, just maybe, is not true. Maybe I'm wrong. It's scary, it is. Especially if you're not accustomed to practicing this way. It is terrifying. You know, maybe maybe the, the self-preservation mechanism is working at the service of an illusion. How about that? As a possibility. So the talk uh, that synagogue at the beginning covered the, the life of the Buddha and a little bit about the history of Buddhism and Zen, along with the fundamental principles of Buddhism. So as I was engaged in the, in the conversation, in the talk, I could sense in the audience a, a mixed reaction of being fascinated with the subject at the same time at the same time, the active consciousness of trying to form ways to rebuttal, to, yes, but I think, blah, 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 blah. Yes, but what about this? What about that? Right? So, again, to, to defend something and to compare it to what I know, what kind of a listening is it when we put what we hear side by side with what we know? And what kind of a listening is it when we put aside everything we know and open up 100% to what we encounter? Not so much to what I was saying when I was speaking there, but more about what it is pointing at. Because Buddhism doesn't speak in terms of history. There are historical facts, but all, all the teachings of Buddhism always talk about you and about now. It talks about your life, our lives. But it's much more convenient to see it as a subject that is separated, that I'm here to just explore, find it interesting or not, move on. You know, one older person there, she said, yeah, that's very interesting, but this has to do, this pertains to the life of the Buddha, the culture he came out of, and anything else that was going on around that time, the language or whatever was going on, she said, we are in a different culture, different time. And 
being at a synagogue, right? I'm Jewish and I have my own heritage. So there is that and there is me and here is what I have identified with. And actually, she did use the word identified with the heritage. Here is what I have identified with or I am identified with and here is what this guy we call the Buddha has been identified with. But then, um, as we got into it further and further, and I brought up simple truths like the five remembrances, right? you know, everything is changing, my actions are the ground upon which I stand, my actions are my only true belongings, impermanence, then little by little, it actually, it started to move away from the historical aspects of Buddhism and it started to become a lot more personal. How could you argue? How could we argue with impermanence? Well, we could and we do, but <laughs> then what? Then what? It's like arguing with gravity. Okay, you don't believe in gravity. Now what do we do? Where do we go from, I don't like that. Those ideas are foreign to me. Where do we go? Actually, one guy said, and as I was talking about, the fact that if we sit down and look and observe honestly, we realize that everything Everything arises, exists for a while, and then disappears. Right? Everything is subject to the same stops along the way. Right? It's going to decay and it's going to die or move on. And he said, no, not everything. Like, for example, my love for music, he said. So I said, okay, your love for music. Let's go there. Every time you listen to music and enjoy it, is it the same? Can you say that your enjoyment is the same every time you go and listen to music? Sit down and listen to music. He said, no. I said, well, it's changing, isn't it? Nothing is fixed. And this has nothing to do with Buddhism, Judaism, or anything. It, doesn't, it has nothing to do with anything that we can identify with, hold on to, make a hat off, in a way, or jacket off. It's a fundamental aspect of our existence. And at the end of that, at the end of the. Uh, questions, the answers, the debates, they got very quiet. What's amazing about that, that people try to shoot it down, and I, what I'm doing there is just as a mirror, showing, well, okay, knock yourself out. Try. Which is exactly what the Buddha said. Right? He said, here's what I realized, and here is how I realized it. Now, if you would like to, please try that. But really try it. And then all resistance falls apart. Actually, uh, this guy, when he said the music, the love for music, he touched on something very deep, but that's not how he talked about it. He touched on getting in touch with something that is fundamental, but is not fixed. The continuum is the continuum, right? And we do get in touch with it. It's just that when we put our finger on it, we lose touch with it. I am the one who, 
we lose touch with it. And the experience of listening to music, it is possible to actually experience the continuum, to experience that which is not subjected to decay in the same way that we are subjected to decay. Or that which is manifesting itself through that which is subjected to decay. That is true. But that's not what, where he came out of and that's not what he was trying to prove. You know, every time that people try to knock it down, to knock down the ideas or, or to prove a point with their ideas. It's kind of like what Linji said, that it's like trying to hammer a nail into an empty sky. We try. It doesn't stick. And we waste so much energy on it. We protect, we defend, we cover up. Just to realize that makeup does not work. It just doesn't work. It falls apart and what it is covering is also falling apart. In this koan, we meet Kweishan which you remember is from his Japanese name as Isan, from Isan's buffaloes. Chinese Zen master from the 8th century, disciple of Pai Chang. Actually, Kuei Xian, along with his disciple Yang Shan, co-founded the Kuei Yang school, one of the five original schools of Zen that over time disintegrated and were absorbed into the two remaining schools these days. And Kuei-shan, again, you, some of you may remember, when he first made Pai Chang, there's a story about his realization. When he was living with Pai Chang, he came by one night, it was dark, and Pai Chang asked, who is it? And he said, that's me, Kuei-shan, the disciple. Oh, he said, oh, come in, join me. And he said, the fire died out. Could you please poke and find an ember in the fire? And uh, Kuei-shan said, okay. He got down on his knees and he looked for, and he poked in the fire. And he couldn't find any ember. And he said, there's no more fire. So Pai Chang got up from his seat and poked in the fire and found one him picked it up and said, what is this? Is this not fire? And at that, these words, Kuei-shan had deep realization. So at the time of this interaction, this koan, Kuei-shan was the Tenzo, the head cook at Pai Chang's monastery. Not the head monk, just the head cook. And this story apparently begins a little bit before that encounter. Among Yakujos, among Pai Chang's disciples, was a layman named Shiba Zuda. He was a veteran fortune teller based on, the, on predictions, on encounters with people, landscape, he would create his predictions. One day, Shiba came to Pai Chang and said, I found a very nice place to build a monastery. If we open one there, many practitioners will congregate and Buddhism will flourish. The features of this mountain indicate that there is power to attract many monks. Pai Chang said, okay, what if I went myself? And Shiba said, no, not you. That mountain terrain is very rough and you are of poor physique. You need to send someone stronger. So Pai Chang said, okay, well, let's look at the students. Let's look at the monks. Maybe one of them will be suitable. 
So first, first Pai Chang called the head monk, and Shiba checked him out. Apparently told him to cough a couple of times and walk a few steps. And after that, after he left the room, Shiba said, he's hopeless. <laughs> he won't do. So next, Kweishan called in, Kweishan was called in. And Shiba gave him one quick look and said, he's the guy. Now that evening, Pai Cheng called Kweishan to his room and after transmitting the Dharma to him, ordered him to open a new monastery. But when the head monk heard about this, he protested and said that he was being discriminated against in favor of someone in the kitchen. So, the public examination became unavoidable. Pai Cheng summoned, summoned the head monk and the Tenzo in front of the assembled monks and said, I will put a question to you. Whoever gives the better answer will be the one to open the monastery. That's where the case begins. This coin. So he took a water jug, put it on the floor in the center and said, you cannot call this a water jug. Tell me, what do you call it? And the head monk said, it cannot be called a wooden sandal. And then, Pai Chang said, Pai Chang got up and actually didn't say anything, got up, kicked it over, and left. So Pai Chang said, first monk, you have been defeated by Kweishan. Now the head monk's answer, right, the, the answer, it cannot be called a wooden sand, is true. Right? It's not false. But is it, is it penetrating to the heart of the matter? Does it shatter everything, all our ideas, completely? So then, all that remains is practice. Or does it bring other questions? And also, why did he refer to it in terms of negation? Why can it not be called something? It's a slippery slope, because essentially, negation is affirmation, affirmation is negation. If I say that this is not a lectern, I am saying, well, it is something else. I may not be saying what it is, but I'm saying what it's not. But if it's not, it is. And if it is, it's not. It's just a loop that essentially feeds itself and creates more questions. It is something to examine. It is something to study. And it can actually lead us in the right direction. But it's not what Pai Chang wanted to see. And actually, it's not what essentially keeps the practice alive. And this is what he needed. He needed someone who will go out there, open the monastery, and keep the practice alive, not keep the discussion alive. That we do very well without monasteries. So it may point in the right direction. It cannot be called a wooden sandal. Yeah. Now what? You know, ultimately all divisions. What it is, what it is not, what we call it, what we don't call it. All divisions have to be seen as illusions. All divisions, all separations, all duality. You know, as in one has many kinds, two have no duality. Right? You know, you remember that from St. Sun's poem, Third Patriarch. But then he said, do not even hold on to the one. 
drop that too. Because the one is already, is already creating complications. If we hold on to it, which means even the one has to be knocked out. Otherwise, there is no flow. No, true Zen is not concerned with naming or not naming. Or even absolute and relative. It's not that there is more Zen in this than that. No, we chant about merging differences. And even the merging needs to be let go of so Zen life can flow, can function freely. <clears throat> no, Pai Chang was not looking for clever answers for Zen language. In fact, he was looking for someone who forgot Zen language. And also in that, it's not that he's expressing him, Kweishan, expressing being free because Zen is about being free. Actually, he's He's carefree but not careless. He cares greatly about monks he needs to feed. Right? Being the head cook. I got better things to do. I don't have time for this nonsense. I don't care what you call it or what you don't call it. That I don't care about. But I do care about the people I need to feed. So in a way, dropping away Zen is allowing Zen to stay alive. Dropping away everything, that all that remains is Zen. Continuously forgetting, forgetting, forgetting. And continuously knocking down, kicking over over and over and over and over again. Because the mechanism that creates is relentless. It's always going to create something, either about yourself, about others, about the practice, about what it is or what it's not. That's not going anywhere. <coughs> but then to go to the kitchen, to favor the kitchen over this discussion, this context, right? whatever was going on. And also he was not interested in becoming anything. It's like, I don't, you know, you want him to go open a monastery? Fine. He can open a monastery, I'll go cook. Eventually he did become a great master. with many disciples. But the story says that after he was sent to open the monastery, he actually disappeared for a long time and lived as a hermit to deepen his understanding. Then at some point he was called by the emperor to go out and actually open the monastery and lead disciples, and he did. So this knocking over the, the water jug, this what seems to be abrupt, it seems to be stopping something, but actually it is allowing something. It, what it is stopping is the mind. It stops the mind from churning, but by stopping the mind from churning, we allow the flow to move.
we actually allow ourselves to merge with the flow. Any thought, any thought is potentially the beginning of the chaos. If it is not knocked down. And it has to be knocked down at the time it arises. Or we open up the gates of hell. One thought, one thought. Heaven and earth are infinitely set apart. One thought. And that's, this is the, the spirit we have to develop. This is the, the skill we have to hone. The skill of being able to see the arising thought as it arises and being able to choose to not go with it or to choose to go somewhere else. To choose to live rather than think about life. To choose to not ponder, to actualize. Also, with, with kicking over the water jug, he's, he's kicking over the attention away from himself and into reality, into everything and everybody else. Yeah, I'm, I'm not the point here. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about everything else and everybody else, and it's not about or, it's about me because I am everything and everybody else. Either way, it's fine. But before I am everything and everybody else, the attention needs to move away constantly, away from you, into reality, into others. Then you are realized as everybody else. You know, there's a great saying, too many words, the great virtue. Too many words, too many thoughts. One word, forget too many. One word, one thought, the great virtue. In the last line of the verse, Mumon says, countless Buddhas come forth from his toes. The toes that kicked over the jug. Those toes cleared away the path for so many practitioners. And even now, today, it's clearing away the path for us to realize. And to realize what we are occupied with even here sitting on cushions, practicing, what is the nonsense we are occupying ourselves with versus what we claim to practice often or in the name of practice? You know, to practice, again, going back to last week, to practice everyday life, to make everyday life a practice means to choose the flow over the self, to choose to return to oneness. And oneness is the flow because it's not a segment. It's not chopped up. It's continuous. And in that, there's a fascicle titled Gyoji Dokan, which means the circle of the way in continuous practice, Dogen writes, on the great road of Buddhas and ancestors, there is always unsurpassable practice, continuous and sustained. It forms the circle of the way and is never cut off. Between aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana, there is not a moment's gap. Just again, 
between aspiration, practice, enlightenment, and nirvana. All that is continuous. There is not a moment's gap. Continuous practice is the circle of the way. Nagyoji means practice, preservation, or maintenance, and, and dokan. Dokan, the do, is a butsudo, the way of the Buddha, the Buddha's way. And kan means ring shaped jewel, which is actually here. This is the symbol of what we have on our rakusu. We sit with it, right? Every time. Continuous practice. Endless. No beginning, no end. But is it, does it work? Maybe it's not made from the right wood, or whatever we think, right? But does it work? Does it remind us to continuously turn to the practice? To continuously realize that there is no end, there is no fixed me, there is no fixed well, there are fixed ideas, but there is no fixed reality. Although it feels this way sometimes, often it feels this way, yeah. And when there are no gaps, he talks about no gaps. When there are no gaps, there are no issues. There are no problems with no gaps. Problems arise when we stop and ponder. Just look at, we all have experience, experiences in knowing where we create complications and knowing where or when we flow. When the attention is on the flow, well, it flows. When the attention is on the self, it feels as if it doesn't flow. It, it feels as if we are stuck. And we act stuck. You know, we often talk about the practice being a flashlight, right? It is neither good nor bad. It has no opinions. It's just a flashlight. We may not like what we see, but we can't blame the flashlight. I don't like the practice because it doesn't feel good. Well, where, where does the feel good come from? Is it the practice that is bringing up or is it the practice that is showing? So, for example, in, in, in Zazen, you know, we have a notion that zazen, good zazen, is, is a period, good meditation is a meditation period where everything flows and I feel equanimity and I'm in touch and I'm connected and it feels great. And the other times that it doesn't feel great, those are not good meditation periods. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that it's not quite the opposite? But we don't know that. But what we do know is that we prefer one over the other. But to, to commit to practice zazen, to commit to zazen, daily zazen, is to commit to zazen regardless of, how, of what we see when we see it, of how we experience the period. If we experience turmoil, there is turmoil. Whether you see it or not, there is turmoil. Which is, which again, doesn't feel good, but it's, it's the way things are at that time. How do we bring equanimity to moments of not experiencing equanimity? That's the question. Of course, the answer is don't judge. Or don't go with the judgment. There is judgment. Don't go with the judgment. 
then it opens things up. Then in the face of contraction, we expand. In the face of anger, there is something else. We, we bring into that feeling of anger a sense of inclusiveness, a sense of being one with all things, a sense of non-duality. At the moment of, I don't like this because it doesn't feel good, at that moment, what do you need to kick over? Is it a one-way street? Or is there another choice? Or another way to meet the moment? Because if, if there is no other way to meet the moment, then there is no way to go deeper into practice. If I think the practice is always going to feel good, I've already concluded it, in a sense, because I'm saying, it is something I do when I feel good. What about all the other times where we may not feel so good? You know, Mumon's in the commentary says, Kweishan <coughs> summed up all his valor, but alas, he could not jump out of Pai Chang's trap. Upon examination, he favors the heavy and not the light. He removed his headband, put on iron yoke. You know, this is uh, to take on the responsibility of running a monastery, of having many monks, many students, is kind of like having a big chain around your ankle. But he favors that. In a way, what Mumon is saying that his duties as a, as a head cook or as a tenzo were much lighter than his duties and responsibilities of running a monastery. And it's true. But he does not shy away from that. because he's open to what life needs him to do. Because he doesn't walk around with a fixed notion of self. If I need to cook, I will cook. If I need to run a monastery, I'll run a monastery. Not because he needed other people to see him as the guy who runs a monastery. He knocked that down a long time ago. There is a dialogue, I'll end with that, there's a dialogue later on when he was a, a great teacher and the monk came by and asked, what is the way, what is Tao? And Krishan replied, Mindlessness is Tao. Not mindfulness. Mindlessness is Tao. The monk said, I do not comprehend. And Kweishan said, all you, need to, all you need is to comprehend the one who does not comprehend. The monk asked again, who, who is the one who does not comprehend? And Kweishan answered, he is none other than you yourself. Then he further taught, I wish to see all people now living know how to experience directly their selfhood. Know that the one who does not comprehend is precisely your mind, precisely your Buddha. If you gain bits of knowledge and information from the outside, mistaking them for, this, for Zen or for Tao, you are quite off the mark. 
This kind of learning is like dumping garbage on your mind rather than purging it of garbage. Any knowledge that is acquired, any acquired knowledge, is essentially dumping garbage on your essential or original self. Any knowledge, any thought, as interesting as it may be, essentially is dumping garbage on your original self. Of course, we don't want to hear that, right? because there are many interesting things we like. But this is not negating that, so don't want to make something out of that. He said, therefore, I say it is not Tao at all. Actually, Lao Tzu said that the practice of the way consists of daily losing. On a regular basis, to lose everything we think, everything we hold on to, everything we have become attached to. And the way to attach is through thought. Thought, emotion, thought, emotion. Cycle. The way to attach, the way to hold on to something is only through a thought. Because when the thought goes away, so does the attachment. And that's key in our practice. To realize, to recognize that in flow there is no attachment. In attachment there is no flow. In flow, there is no knowing, not knowing. In knowing, there is no flow. Shibayama quoted an ancient master who expressed in short <coughs> verse his appreciation of Kweishan's knocking down the water jug. And he said, with one blow he knocked down Kokakuro, the great tower. With one kick he turned over Omuju, the big island. And then Shibayama commented on that, saying, if you think that Kweishan kicked over the water jug, you are thousands of miles away from what has been knocked over. And this, this has to come down to one question. One question. What do you need to kick over? What are you holding on to? One question. Every day. What do I need to kick over? Thank you.